For decades, the ABA's Birders Exchange Program has worked to collect donated new and used equipment and to distribute it to local researchers and conservationists working to conserve birds and their habitats throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. This December, help celebrate that legacy in beautiful Honduras at an ABA Birders Exchange rally with Birders Exchange recipients, local guides, and ABA staff. Come birding in the tropics with the ABA this December. A few spots are still available. Get more information at events.aba.org. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and like a lot of you, I'm sure I've been following the news during and after the landfall of Hurricane Harvey along the Gulf Coast of Texas. It has been jaw-dropping, the power of that storm, the the rainfall associated with it. Many, many birders are, are weather geeks in addition to being bird geeks. So there's there's a lot of room for overlap there, especially this time of year as we come into fall and migration and how the you know, the movements of birds are very much associated with weather conditions. So so all my social media feeds have, have blown up in the past week or two about hurricanes and birds. Uh, this particular storm has, has had a couple obvious ties to birding and birders. Uh, for starters, the area affected the the upper Texas coast is, is very well known as one of the best places on the continent to experience migration, especially spring migration. Uh, it's not clear what is going to happen to those birding sites. That whole Rockport up to Beaufort area has taken a real beating. Uh, who knows what that habitat is going to look like once the water recedes and we we get in there to take stock. Um, you know, I think that the environmental impacts have taken a backseat to the human element of this storm, and you know, rightly so at this point. Uh, but in addition to the to the water and wind damage, there's also p- the potential for chemical damage. Lots of petroleum refinery manufacturing in that part of the world, and those sites are not always the most leak proof in the best of times. And now with billions of gallons of water in the mix, uh, a lot of it's salt water, highly corrosive. You know, we'll see. I, I do think that will be a big story in the in the weeks and months to come. And, and for birders, there's, of course, you know, the sort of weird mixed feelings that hurricanes sort of produce. Um, the way we sort of have to hold in our heads both the the concern for the you know incredible destructive power of these tropical storms uh, and also the sort of excitement, uh, you know, we can't deny it, uh, about what birds might get blown around or entrained in the storms. Um, I, I've always called it the hurricane paradox. I live in North Carolina in the southeast. We in the southeast know this paradox very well. Um, you know, I, I have some really, actually some great memories of some storms. I've seen storm petrels blown inland 200 miles with not just, you know, terribly strong tropical storms, also sort of classic storm waves like sooty and bridal turns that have come into the reservoirs in the Piedmont near where I live. You know, Harvey coming through the Gulf of Mexico as it did was a little bit different. The, the folks at eBird had a live tracker running for those birding in the storm, those, those brave souls. Uh, there were a lot of magnificent frigate birds associated with it, sort of what you'd expect for a storm that came through the Gulf. A uh, fair number of sooty turns, and of course those you know those expected coastal birds blown way inland, and by that I mean stuff like you know least turn, royal turn, etc. Very turn heavy. Uh, they do tend to get blown around a lot in storms like this. Um, so something to continue to keep an eye on, even after the storm dissipates. These big low pressure centers that spawn it do move birds around, especially if they are already moving in migration. Um, I hope that what listeners we have in the storm's path are are safe and dry, as safe and dry as they can be. At least we are certainly thinking about you. So stay tuned here once things begin to shake out. 
and we will be able to see the conditions of those birding sites. There will probably be opportunities for birders to help. Um, I would expect Houston Audubon would be on it and be a, a great place to start. And we'll have we'll have more on that as it develops here and on the ABA blog. And now those in the path of Irma, which is looking also like it's going to be a beast, uh, please stay safe. On the show today, Birding Magazine editor Ted Floyd offers a commentary on being a birder, how you're never not a birder. You might have read this on the ABA blog a couple of weeks ago. We have produced it for audio files too. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, but first, my guest is Bill Thompson III. He, he scarcely needs an introduction to birders. He's the editor of Birdwatcher's Digest, among other things. He's a good friend of the ABA, the creator of the American Birding Expo, which will be held later this month in Philadelphia. We will talk about what you can expect from that right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of August, the first little bit of September 2017. As in the last episode, this period has seen a really remarkable suite of ABA area notable and first records. We're starting to get reports from Western Alaska with a few more goodies mixed in on uh, Gamble on St. Lawrence Island has seen the ABA's fifth record of Asian brown flycatcher as well as Dusky Warbler and Pechora Pippet so far this this fall, so that is exciting. Uh, but the most incredible bird of the period is the ABA's third record of swallow-tailed gull that has been present the last few days just north of Seattle, Washington, making it that that rare mega rarity that is also close to a major U.S. city. Uh, what that means is that a lot of birders have seen this thing, uh, and what a stunner it is. Uh, swallow-tailed gull is a pelagic gull. It is a Galapagos Island near-endemic breeder. It is the world's only nocturnal feeding gull which means it has these gigantic all dark eyes with this bright red eye rings that make it look like an anime character rather than an actual creature. And it's got this sort of smoky plumage. It's, it's a real stunner. Um, and as I mentioned, this is the ABA's third record. Both prior records are from Central California. The last one was in 1996. So this is a first for Washington and a first for the ABA area in more than 20 years. Very, very exciting stuff. Uh, other first to note, New Hampshire's first McGillivray's warbler was found this week at the same state park, notably, that hosted the shell duck we talked about last week, which is a really odd combination of birds. Um, Maryland had its first record of sharp-tailed sandpiper. Idaho got its first great crested flycatcher, leaving only one state left in the continental U.S. without that species. That is Washington. Uh, who has other birds to look at right now. Uh, British Columbia's first confirmed record of piping plover uh, was photographed near Delta. Kentucky had a redneck stint, which is a first for the state. And ending where we began, uh, where a Nazca booby was photographed off of Kodiak Island in Alaska. Uh, this is a species that only started showing up in the aviary at all in the last five years. So they've been absolutely been making time up the Pacific coast. Uh, notably, Nazca booby is another, like the swallowtail gull, a Galapagos near-endemic breeder. Uh, so maybe there's something going on down there that is spinning birds up into North America. We've had a number of Nazca boobies, most of them in California this fall. Uh, stuff like Galapagos petrel, Galapagos shearwater should be on the minds of people heading offshore this fall. I am sure that the leaders on all those boats uh, have them in their minds would be a good idea for participants to be thinking of them too and getting lots and lots of photos of dark rumped type pterodroma petrels and black and white shearwaters. 
I hope I didn't miss anything. It was a really busy and exciting two weeks. There was also a lot of really good pelagic stuff in California. Uh, Wedge Rumped and Townsend Storm Petrol. That latter one was a recent split from Leech's Storm Petrol. Uh, maybe when things calm down a bit, we can give those birds a little more attention. They certainly deserve it. But it is fall, and the West Coast is red hot with rarities, as it, as it always is this time of year. Uh, if you don't want to miss anything, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning or join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook page at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. So later this month, the third edition of the American Birding Expo will be held at the Greater Philadelphia Expo Center in Oaks, Pennsylvania, just just west of the city. The mastermind behind this event and and so many other things in the birding community is Bill Thompson III. He's editor-in-chief at Birdwatcher's Digest. He's the birding world's pod father hosting This Birding Life and uh, with Ben Lisdis out there with the birds. And he's the author of a number of books. It's a lot of stuff. This time we're going to talk Expo News. Uh, Thanks for joining me. It's, It's great to talk to you again. Yeah, and I've been upgraded to Mastermind, Nate. That's really kind of you. I appreciate that, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Whatever I can do to help promote the Bill Thompson brand. Yeah, everybody wants that on their resume. Yeah, <laughs> I could probably talk to you about just about you know anything in the in the birding world, but we'll, we'll focus on Expo stuff at least for now. You know, we in the North American birding community are, are pretty familiar with the ideas of the, the birding festival. You know, we've got the Rio Grande, Space Coast, San Diego, sort of all variations on a theme. Uh, the American Birding Expo is a little bit different. So how does it fill this niche that we've been missing? Well, it's, it's a good question. Um, I've gone to a lot of festivals over the years. You know, I think the estimates are 350 to 400 birding festivals in the U.S. And I, I've been to almost all of the mid-sized to larger ones and, and a lot of the small ones. And many of them have a vendor area where um, if the birding's good, the vendors are standing there. They could play frisbee or, or you know, horseshoes and not hit a single consumer. I mean, the, the classic case of that was a few years back yeah. when the Amazon Kingfisher showed up during the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival, and you know, just everything right. emptied out to go see that rare mm-hmm. bird. So, um, we also have run a few events at Birdwatchers Digest uh, under the Midwest Birding Symposium uh, brand, and. Um, I found over those years of sort of managing a festival sort of content rich like thing with field trips and a vendor hall that you couldn't make everybody happy, you know, uh, especially the vendors, many of whom are your sponsors. So I decided to try to invert that, if you will, turn it inside out and do an event that would be just a vendor hall, just a commercial opportunity for people to shop. No content necessarily or very little, no birding. So the exhibitors coming to that are sort of guaranteed to have the attention of the consumer. Um, And we tested it uh, two times with a thing called the Birding Optics and Gear Expo in Columbus, Ohio. And that worked very well. Just it was basically a one-day thing. And that's where the idea for the expo kind of grew. Simultaneous to that, I'd been going, I've gone, I think, 10 or 12 times now to the British Birdwatching Fair, which is exactly that. It's a thing that's now, I think next year is going to be its 30th year. They get 25,000 people to a bunch of sheep fields in the middle of England to come to a big birdwatching, commercial birdwatching yeah, event. So th- all those things sort of played into it. And I don't know, It's it's been, it's been fairly successful so far. We want to grow it. That's why we're moving it to Philadelphia to be nearer to more people, more population, and a greater density of birders. Yeah, that... Um you know, mid-Atlantic kind of birding culture is, is very strong. You know, we've got Delaware Valley, you've got uh, Cape May, ABA is right there. Yep. I mean, you should be able to attract a ton of people. Yeah, yeah. and that was an, a big reason for the move. You know, our, our attendance at the second one was down just a little bit. And I realized that I was spending too much time 
on the infrastructure of the event and not enough time marketing it. And so we've kind of uh, shifted our focus um, to be much more uh, building this really almost as an ecotourism event um, for people who aren't maybe even necessarily birders per se, but they do love to travel. And, yeah. you know, I, we're trying to encourage them to try out a little birding while they're traveling. And I think that's where some of our partners like CMBO, you mentioned, Cape May Bird Observatory, ABA, uh, DVOC. We've had lots of help from uh, those organizations in trying to sp spread the word and develop sort of the concept of the event so that it's not just for the person who's already committed birder, but also we're welcoming lots of people who might just want to stick a toe in and, and, and try out birding for the first time. Yeah, yeah, the expo certainly boasts this this vendor lineup that's really impressive. You've got tour operators from like literally all over the world. It's it's really really cool. Um, it's this is the only place that some of these people are are promoting in North America. Uh, what do you think expo attendees will get out of being able to see these these representatives from from all over the globe in this in this one place? Well, Nate, I, you know, one of the best things about birding is the social part. Um, I think virtually everybody I know who's a committed birder and and is and like you and I, you know, it's basically our life and our avocation, you know, our, our vocation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think being able to connect with people who do the same thing that you do, who are passionate about birds and, and nature and, and the, the natural world, that, that's really special. And to be able to encounter people that you would never normally encounter otherwise. Very, very few people from the United States attend the British Birdwatching Fair. And frankly, not that many birders even go to festivals and, and go to the vendor areas. I mean, there's a committed stream of them, but so this is really an opportunity to kind of browse. We call it the world of birding in one place, kind of browse this giant bazaar of stuff. A lot of it tours and travel, but a lot of it's also experiences, products, you know, ideas, apps, organizations. So it's it's a coming together of the of the tribe, if you will, to you know, obviously kind of commercial purpose at the at the core of it, but also a lot of the social stuff that happens is is really the reason for uh, for coming. You know, you mentioned Bird Fair a couple times. That's that's probably the closest analog to to this event. You know, that that event is in the UK. It's been going on for almost thirty years now. It's really impressive. Um, you sort of modeled this event after Bird Fair. Are there are the things about the North American birding community versus the UK community that sort of make it difficult to sort of exactly model off off the Bird Fair in the UK? Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to make it an exact replica. What Tim and Martin. Tim Appleton and Martin Davies created there 30 years ago, sitting in the Finch's Arms pub in, in near uh, near uh, Oakham, uh, dreaming up this idea. And I think the first uh, the first year they had it, just maybe five or ten or so exhibitors and a bunch of tables in small little tents. You know, that's grown into this huge thing. It's every penny that they generate goes to conservation because it's run by a consortium of, of conservation organizations with uh, with Tim at the head of it. Um, ours, obviously, is a little bit more commercial. Birdwatcher's Digest is ostensibly a for-profit business, and so we want to make money at it, but we also want to grow the marketplace. So while ours, I mean, I tried our first two years in Columbus to be intense, just like the, I mean, in tense, not intense. It was it, <laughs> right. it was both, both actually. actually. Yeah, yeah, why, why <laughs> but um we got back from the second one and uh, we're kind of doing a, a, you know, a post-mortem on it. And Don, my managing editor here at the magazine said, you know, Bill, I got to say, 
the first expo, the tents didn't serve us well because it was cold and rainy and we had to get heaters and everybody froze. And the second expo, <laughs> it was hot and sunny. We baked. We were driving, you know, hauling wagons full of ice water up and down the aisles <laughs> trying to keep people cool. Um, so we're not going to do tents anymore. I think we'll probably be in uh, a building. We're in Philadelphia this year and next year at this expo center. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But, you know, the United States, North America is is far too big to attract everybody the way the bird fair does. You know, it's in central England. It brings people in not only from all over England and the UK, it brings them in from all over Europe. I mean, and, and really all over the world. And you can get there totally on public transit if you want. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a difference. And really, the United States being so big, eventually, if, if the expo is going to be successful, we'll probably need to uh, move it around to, to, you know, we're not, we get people from almost all 50 states. I think 46 was our high among all, you know, attendees of all stripes, exhibitors, everybody. Um, I don't think we're going to get massive numbers of Western birders when we're in Philly because it's just it's so far. So, you know, that's one of the things we're thinking about for the future. One of the major differences will always be the geographic one. Yeah, yeah. it's always struck me with the, the North American birding community is that they have these sort of core sites where everyone sort of, sort of gathers together. You know, Mid-Atlantic, absolutely one. Um, you know, I think of Northern California and Southern California, like Southern Ontario. There's a lot of these places all over the continent and they have kind of their mm -hmm. own birding culture, their own birding community. It's, you know, if you were able to move around, that's the sort of what you have in mind, you know, sort of move around to these little places and kind of bring in that local flavor. Yeah. And, and, and work with the local organizations and the local. I mean, it's looking down the road. Obviously, yeah. But. Yeah. And I, you know, who knows how far we, we really need to see how these two go in Philly uh, before we can make that decision. And that's the. That's kind of the joy and the abject fear that I feel about, you know, I have these nightmares where nobody shows, I'm standing at the expo door and there's nobody in the parking lot and I've got, you know, 110 exhibitors behind me going, hey, what the heck, you know. You know, this year it's going to be uh, next door to the uh, Walking Dead convention too. So maybe we can bring some of those people in. Well, we're going to have one of the first signs that we're, we've ordered is, uh, as birders this way, zombies this way, because there's, <laughs> there's, it is the Walker stalker event, yeah. which yeah. is for fans of the grateful, or not the grateful dead, the walking dead. And, um, the, the, one of the cool little sidebars is, uh, there's this author, J.R. Ripley, who writes, uh, birder murder mysteries. Mm -hmm. And I told him, Hey, J.R., he expressed some interest in coming to the expo. And I said, Hey man, I got an idea for your next mystery. You know, there could be a murder at the expo and nobody knows because of all the people dressed up like zombies. Right, like right. there's, Oh, this sure a dead idea, body. Yeah. That's per so he's coming this year and he's going to, he's going to research that. And I think that's going to be next year's book. Maybe oh, is, that's uh, cool. is, uh, so uh, that's going to be fun. I mean, we're, we're trying to, the zombie event is vastly bigger than we are. They're, they're going to be, it's going to be huge. So we're kind of, this uh, off to the side in the two smaller exhibit halls, but you know, we're still going to have a lot of people there, 108 exhibitors. Mm -hmm. And I think 30, 30 countries are represented. So yeah. And zombies, we're going to let the zombies in for free if they want to come in. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Great photo ops at least. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, what, what else can attendees expect this year? In addition to the kind of the trade show thing? Well, um, actually, ABA has been real helpful with us in our planning. There, ABA is going to be doing during the expo little sort of impromptu bird walks out from their stand. Um, they're also helping us uh, with the morning programming. We're going to be having uh, three different tracks of free uh, bird presentations. Um, one is going to be for 
people who just want to get started with bird feeding, and Wild Birds Unlimited is going to help us with that. Um, there'll be pr- two programs each morning, Friday and Saturday, on that. Then our staff at Birdwatchers Digest, are, we're going to do beginning bird watching pr- presentations on those mornings. And then the ABA uh, and some of our more accomplished ac- exhibitors are going to be doing um, a little bit more intermediate to advanced ID kind of stuff. So um, Liz at, at the ABA has been helping us coordinate that. So there'll be those three tracks for people for free simultaneous on those on all three mornings, actually will be free bird walks at five different area hotspots that uh, oh, cool. George Armistead from Rock Jumper Birding Tours has been helping us coordinate. He's he's a Philly birder, lifelong uh, native Absolutely. of the that city. So he's got the hookup for us with a bunch of good uh, guides, lead guides at these various places. So, you know, we've got a Hawk Watch in there. We've got uh, Heinz National Wildlife Refuge and uh, Valley Forge National Park. So there'll be some great free morning bird walks for people. Um, we've got two keynotes on one on Friday, one on Saturday. Julie Zikafus is giving a her a baby birds talk on Friday night based on her book, um, and then Scott Widensall's on Saturday. So, again, those are free to Expo attendees. And um, because the, the the one little difference about this year's Expo in, in Philly is that um, there is a charge at the door because this is a facility that does commercial events. So we had to put a charge. So it's ten dollars at the door. Um, and everybody who buys a ticket in advance gets a free raffle ticket because they have to pay an extra little credit card fee. So that 10 bucks gets you in the door, and um, if you buy it in advance, you get the free raffle ticket. That 10 bucks, as much as of it as we possibly can, is going to go right to our conservation fund, and um, you know we're going to donate that money after the expo. So, so where does that money go? What what conservation funds are you sponsoring this year? Well, we haven't decided that yet. We're the first two years we did one international, one national, and one local. And the local one in Columbus, Ohio, was the Young Urban Naturalist Program uh, Conservation Classroom with the Grange Insurance Audubon Center. We'll obviously do something local for kids. Probably working with the John James Audubon Center from Pennsylvania Audubon. Um, they've been real, real helpful with us in getting the expo launched. Um, and that John James Audubon's original home, Mill Grove, is literally not even a mile away from the Expo Center. So that'll be one of our birding sites as well. We, we worked with ABA to, on Red Knot programming and conservation uh, the first two years, and, and we worked with BirdLife International on, to, we were a species champion for the hooded grebe down in Patagonia. Rather than uh, continue those same three, we're going to do an application process. So any interested conservation organizations or projects will be able to apply, and then we'll probably shortly after the Expo, once we know what the total is, um, we'll be awarding grants to at least three and maybe more conservation projects or organizations. And um, there are lots and lots of worthwhile projects and organizations out there. So we're going to kind of take a little bit of a knowing how much money we actually have after the expo and then select and announce the uh, the winners. So that or, or the, the, the awardees, I guess, would be a better way to say it. That'll give us a little bit more time to... Um, you know, to, to make thoughtful decisions about it. Um, that, that's a decision we kind of made based on how we used to do uh, the, a similar thing with the Midwest Birding Symposium. So I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears for just a second, if that's all right with you. I wanna I wanna talk to you briefly about podcasting, specifically this specifically birding podcast. Obviously, it feels like we're in a, a little bit of a renaissance with that. You know, for a long time, this birding life was was one of the only birding podcasts that was yours. You got on the got on the train very early. Uh, joined later by by Bird Chick, who's been doing it for a long time too. Uh, what do you like most about this medium? And how do you think it works for for birding in particular? 
Man, I, I love it. And I, I, I want to say right from the outset, Nate, that you do a fantastic job with the ABA. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't fishing for compliments or anything. but No, I, I know. But, I, I, you know, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again right here for everybody here. You're doing a great job. You guys produce a great podcast. Always uh, interesting. Always punchy and to the point. So, um, no, you know what? I think uh, I love podcasting because I, I, I love to talk and I'm a, I love to talk to people and I love to <laughs> interview people. And I, I sort of... It, I actually wish if I could do nothing else but but podcasts, I, I would be a happy camper. I've always loved messing with audio stuff. I've always loved, um, you know, sometimes playing music. Sometimes my favorite part of a gig is like setting up and getting everything just right. Something, I don't know, taps into my OCD or something. But, um, you know, just being able to converse with somebody and share a little bit of time, getting inside their head and their heart and their life. That, to me, is really interesting. That's why I sort of kept This Burning Life as more of a long-form podcast, even though we all know that, you know, sort of you got to keep it under 45 minutes. The shorter, the better. The, <laughs> yeah. the other podcast that I'm involved in is with Ben Lizis. You mentioned that earlier, out, out There with the Birds. And that's more of just a banter back and forth, really. We don't script it. We just kind of talk about whatever's on our brains. And I try to make a music recommendation in there just to keep it a little bit different. But, you know, I, I love the fact that birders have podcasts. We're a social clan. We, you know, we interact so many ways, you know, verbally. And I, I just love it that, the, you know, what we've done with Birdwatchers Digest over the last 40 years has been basically storytelling. And so I th that's what I love about podcasting is it, it's, you know, it's conversation, it's stories. You know, I just love it. it it's a great way to connect with people. And I, I've been shocked, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this. I'm shocked that traveling around the world, you know, you run into somebody and I ran into a guy in, in the, a remote island in the Philippines who said, I love your podcast. I was at the bird fair. A German guy came up to me and said, <laughs> oh, I love your podcast. You're Bill Thompson, aren't you? It's oh, crazy. It's crazy to me. So, I'm always flattered that people do listen, and I'm, I, I love it. I, I, I'd love to do nothing else but podcasting. Uh, thanks for your time, Bill. Bill Thompson is editor of Birdwatchers Digest magazine and hosts two podcasts, This Birding Life and Out There with the Birds with Ben Listis. If you like what we do here, you will definitely like those as well. The American Birding Expo is September 29th through October 1st in Philadelphia. Get all the information you need at AmericanBirdingExpo.com. Uh, thanks again, Bill. I'm looking forward to talking to you again later this month at the Expo. Nate, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. In our last segment, birding editor Ted Floyd on the magic of birding in the mundane. It was a totally workaday morning for me. Breakfast had been a microwaved burrito. I'd gotten the kids off to school and I was at my desk now, gazing at the laptop. Out the window I could hear the sounds of suburbia. A delivery truck rumbling by, snippets of human conversation, and power tools going off at a construction site up the street. The whole thing was life-imitating art, or rather, artlessness. It might as well have been the establishing shot for a B-grade docudrama on the mediocrity of this modern life. Then I heard it! Double-banded, arching upward, 25 milliseconds, 3 to 4 kilohertz, the unmistakable chip note of a Wilson's warbler. A migrant, my FOS, or first of season. I keep a pocket-sized digital recorder by my side, so I reached over turned it on, pointed it toward the leafy maple beyond the window screen, and got a recording. The bird was just a Wilson's warbler, just about the most common early autumn migrant in the Front Range metro region where I live. The warbler moved on. Less than two minutes later, I was back at work, back at the desk, back at my laptop. 
No matter, my day had been brightened immeasurably by that refulgent visitor outside my window. I never saw it, and yet I did. I saw the bird in my mind's eye, a blaze of yellow with a smart black yarmulke, its eye fixed and staring, its tail cocked just so. In an instant, my head and heart were flooded with a lifetime of memories. Willies everywhere in a forest clearing in Guatemala a couple years back. A family group in an alder bog last month. Indeed, my lifer, a pert male, nearly 35 years ago. The stimulus for this Proustian moment was one-fortieth of a second. Not nearly as long as it takes to savor a Madeline. Isn't that the most wondrous thing about being a birder? We hear a monosyllabic utterance in a suburban planting, shorter than a sigh, softer than a footstep, and we know, we just know, that something beautiful and powerful is out there, a bright ball of matter and energy, up at tree line yesterday or last week, on its way to Guatemala today. These things happen every single day. Sure, there are the list-serve moments and RBA-worthy sightings, full-on, full-fledged, official rarities. We birders delight in those, and we make no apologies for that. But what sustains us day after day after day is the promise of wonder and surprise behind every hedgerow, at every bend in the river, in every suburban lot. I've long drawn inspiration from the scientists who taught us that this universe of ours is far grander than we ever knew. Copernicus and Galileo, Curie and Einstein, Hubble and Hawking and others. And I think it is their spirit that motivates us as birders. In the course of our ordinary workaday affairs, we affirm, as Darwin did, that there is grandeur in this view of life. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You have heard this before, but if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help support this and the many other free resources the ABA provides for birders around North America and the world, the best way to do that is to join the ABA and tell them that the podcast sent you. You can do that at aba.org slash join. Special shout out to Amy Hahn of Parker, Colorado, who did just that recently. Uh, welcome, Amy, and thanks for your support. You can also head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Your comments give us valuable feedback and help others to find us. Thanks in advance. Executive producer of this podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Not to be confused with the American Burn Association. Hey, other ABA, the records committee told me that your field sketches look like someone threw up in a coloring book. You burnt! <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Oh, like, like the injuries? Oh, oh that's embarrassing. Uh, questions and comments can come to me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>